today is Monday the 27th, and uh, yeah, it's just another day of quarantine paradise, I guess. Uh, today, we're going to be talking with Ian Linehan about the first four episodes of The Last Dance, and uh, yeah, we're going to do this for every four episodes and then the final two, so I hope you guys enjoy, and uh, let's just get on the line with Ian. All right, so now on the line, we got Ian Lenahan to talk about our recap of what, which what we're going to call uh, Drop the Mic. Hey, Corey, thanks for having me back. Yeah, we've, we've bought, we both watched uh, this first four episodes. We're liking it as much as everyone else is, I think. Unless it's you, so like, good. To, yeah, I was going to say, unless you're coming oh, no, on. Oh, it's to so do. good. It's like a movie that I just, I just keep wanting to watch. I love um, I love the narrative arc of it, but what I just think is best is just all the behind the scenes, like locker room footage. Yeah, apparently. So the deal with that is that uh, they've had this footage from Michael's last season for so long, and it they just mm. never got the permission. They needed permission from the NBA and Jordan to do it, and Jordan <laughs> was always like withholding that info. And then when did that happen, Corey? When did he give permission? Uh, when I feel like he needed money. No, do you remember specifically when? No. It was during the Cavs championship parade. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> gotcha. It's almost like he was like, all right, well, this narrative of LeBron's the best needs to stop. <laughs> As the most I'm humble way that Jordan you. can. <laughs> I'm tired of these millennials only using me as a meme. <laughs> Screw you, Bron Bron. <laughs> but hey, come by my lake house. <laughs> or come to the Hornets, for God's sakes. <laughs> <laughs> we just lost Kemba and we got Devontae Graham. Charlotte, the city of lights. <laughs> the city of Sorry, beans. that's Montreal, I think. Come to the honeycomb. <laughs> Don't you want to see LeBron and Teal and Maroon? Not at all. No, but this this is so good. And I I wish that it could be just like five straight nights or I mean you probably saw the tweets the first night about everyone being like I will stay up till 7 a.m. to watch the rest of these episodes that's how good they are yeah I like going back to the narrative thing that you said I feel like it's perfectly organized in the way that it goes forward Mm -hmm. to 1998 but it like shows events of how the team was constructed leading up to it at the same time so it's like you're kind of following two narratives like the end and the build to the end yes exactly yeah I haven't really heard or seen anything about people being confused or disliking that because i think to really bring everything full circle and to go back to the the like you said the idea of how everyone came together the whole collective is you have to show those little moments in between and that includes you know when doug collins was coached before phil jackson or when michael was playing for the couple years before scotty and all these different things yeah it's like even though also today in today's world it seems like people are much more interested in the like the end and like how mm-hmm. badly it burned than the building mm-hmm. up to it which exactly. is just a such a positive mentality we have as a society right you need to appreciate the little ride along before you get to the final destination wow you <laughs> always to my lower back <laughs> did you go to the indian reservation I read that off a fortune cookie. Bill Jackson gave it to me off of a smoke signal. <laughs> Did you see the photo of Bill Jackson in the taxi? Can't do like Just definitely tripping. <laughs> yes. He's like, I am a lion. 
but did you see what Barstool posted? No. Yeah, they were like, me going to the bar after pre-gaming with the original four loco. <laughs> oh, God. All right, it's so I guess we'll uh, start with, like, the first episode, which I think we talked about mm-hmm. this before recording, but we kind of summarized it as Jordan's upbringing, like, as a player combined mm-hmm. with uh, just the original struggles, I guess. And it kind of, like, yeah. teased the demolishing at the same time. Yeah, exactly. And something that they did a good job of is not rushing into, I mean, I guess for lack of a better word or phrase, his very fierce competitive attitude. Because I think the tipping point in terms of that in that episode, the first episode, was when they were talking about his father and how he was competing for his father's attention by trying to be better than his older brother. Um, Not Larry, but there's another I don't remember, but... Um, and you remember the part I'm talking about, yeah. right? Yeah. And then because obviously coming in as a rookie, he was, you know, when you come into the league, I'm saying it like we've done this many times, but when you come into, when you come into the league as a rookie, obviously, no matter who you are, you're going to get some sort of hazing or some sort of rookie treatment. But then it was that third game, which they specifically highlighted where he just took over the end of the game. And that's when they realized, okay, not only is this guy such a natural player but he has one of the best attitudes ever <laughs> I, I i like the hazing that oakley did to pippin because i feel like that would I, be me. I would be pippin oh yeah <laughs> uh but um yeah jordan i thought it was everyone the most famous jordan story you hear is like from like any high school kid who doesn't make a team it's like, oh jordan didn't make his varsity team mm-hmm. they said the reason he didn't make it wasn't because he wasn't skilled he didn't make it because he wasn't like built to play it wasn't tall enough yeah so i just want that to go to all the kids from your hometown who say that they're like <laughs> they're like two pounds of muscle from breaking through the nba ceiling hey Corey, i'm that kid from my hometown what are you trying to say your mixtape has 132 views it's five years <laughs> later 133 after i watch it tonight <laughs> after <laughs> and cry <laughs> i thought it was really interesting the way that they painted Jordan's legacy at UNC, though, because it just really seemed like the program built him into the way he was through, like, mm-hmm. not anything they did, but it was, like, the perfect environment for him to build into who he was. I also thought it was so interesting how it seemed like he didn't want to leave. Which... He didn't want to leave. He, you know, took on this classic college campus after, you know, growing up in I, I i think he said a middle class sort of lifestyle in north carolina and then going to unc and just being absolutely enveloped by the atmosphere and then i just think it's so interesting in comparison to you know now with social media and all these basketball players on you know the aau circuit you, i feel like you hear about people when they're 14 15 16 years old You're like oh this guy's on the come up and then they're being broadcasted since they're teenagers. And so why would they stay in college when they know that they have a direct path to the league? But it seemed like Michael Jordan was the total opposite of that. The only player recently who I can think of that was good enough to go into the NBA and didn't want to was Zion with uh, Coach K. Because mm-hmm. Zion said he didn't want to leave either, but Coach K was the one who said, you should go. 
So I exactly. guess that's like the modern day. That's the closest modern day comparison you can have because every other player that's been drafted like number one or in the top five has always been a player that's super young. You never get the NBA isn't interested in the four year college or three year college player anymore. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I I'm having a very hard time thinking of anyone who's been like that since since I got involved in you know March Madness or anything like that. I can't really think of anyone, so I think Zion's a good comparison for that. That's like the last time I heard of it, though. Like, you, yeah, there's a Cassius Winston or like that type of player who's like, mm-hmm. I'm going to stay in another year, and I'm like, yeah, well, that's also because you would not be a first round pick if you entered the draft. So how gracious of you to not enter? Exactly, and history shows there's just a bunch of people who stay for maybe a junior or senior year because maybe they want to finish up their degree or they just feel like they aren't done with the collegiate atmosphere or the collegiate competition and then maybe they get hurt or maybe the team doesn't gel or maybe they just fall short and so likely angelo ball poor kid oh man he looks like a beaver <laughs> you see the wizards are interested in him no yeah god i know but um <laughs> they already got john wall and brad peel dude wait a minute wizards um but yeah, so I think it's it was very interesting to see because I didn't know that about him that he wanted to stay in college. Yeah, well, you can't blame him. He was at the peak of the world. He won the best basketball player in the country. He was definitely mm-hmm. beloved by the whole campus where he was a superstar. Yeah, definitely. But uh, yeah, you know, Michael was really struggling with the idea of leaving. God, it must be tough. God, it must be awesome to be cool. Anyways. <laughs> Another thing I feel like that Doc touched on was it, it, it it's not painting uh, Krause in a great light, I have to say. <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't really – I'm very interested to see how the documentary plays out in terms of Krause's relationship with everyone because um, I think it was in ep- – yeah, it was episode four where they talked about beating um, – the Pistons in 1991 to advance to the NBA Finals against the Lakers, and then they're all celebrating on the bus, and Jerry Krause is dancing with Scottie Pippen. That's a and it looks like everyone's having a great time, and they're excited. Maybe it's just that winning that winning uh, feeling, and they didn't care that he was dancing with it, but it was also the early version of the successful Bulls. So, Yeah, uh, that was a play. Ep- oh. Which made me Screw think. Screw you, man. That also just made me really wonder how now maybe one of the advancements in plane technology that had to be made to support that those rigorous dance moves on that plane <laughs> bit of turbulence nope jerry Krause is dancing in the back <laughs> with a red solo cup <laughs> it looks like uh, the yeah, generic very... Fortnite dance with like the knee like the legs before it you breaks like... off into the like arms folding do you remember those toys the weebles wobbles they all fall down <laughs> That's that's what he kind of reminded me of. Oh, God. So yes, I'm very interested to see how the rest of it plays out for many reasons, but specifically the Jerry Krause, because it really hasn't been touched on since the first episode where they just went in on him. <laughs> it's but like every I, other episode, episode too. Yeah, uh, and every other episode, they're just like, okay, yeah, and uh, fuck Krause. Anyway. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and they also talked about the Phil and uh, Krause dynamic in episode one, too. Mm-hmm. Which I don't know any way in which you can say be a, a G, like a, a GM of a team and just be like, 
Yeah, you know what's really sucking? This six-time NBA champion coach. <laughs> you as a coach, you successful bastard. <laughs> <laughs> I'm tired of you taking the peyotes in a taxi. You're out of my wedding. Did I miss something, or do I? I just I don't fully understand why um, he didn't want to keep Phil Jackson. I know, obviously, I there was he a just thing, felt but... like he wanted to break the rebuild clean, so having him leave. But then, like obviously, as we find out in later episodes, Jordan didn't want any other coach but Phil Jackson, which I guess was true right. for the short right. of time Jordan retired after the season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but uh, I don't get it either. I feel like. If anything, you would want to keep the coach around for at least a year mm-hmm. with a rebuild to get like the structure in place versus just keeping it wiped. Right, and like what was happening with Doug Collins with Phil Jackson as an assistant coach, maybe in that time, if you do go for a rebuild and you maybe you only keep the head coach around for another season or two, then you start developing maybe another assistant coach or start recruiting for a younger coach with a different style of play or something, but... I don't know. Maybe it has something to do with just maybe for someone like Jerry Krause. Maybe it was more about his legacy. And because imagine how gratifying it would have been to have essentially blown up the most successful basketball dynasty of all time, arguably. And then still still have success and find a way to win with new players and new coach, new coaches. So maybe it had something to do with that, but I don't really know. Hopefully they get to that at some point. Yeah, in a way, it kind of reminds me of the Brady-Belichick type dynamic. Because it's like it's like what we're seeing now, where it's like you definitely get the feeling that the these two big figures in the sport both want to probably show that they don't need the other in order to do well. And that's what I really feel like this whole Jordan... Uh, and Kraus and Jackson dynamic really was, except Jordan obviously wanted to be with uh, Phil, but like mm-hmm. Kraus, yeah. it's like it, there's definitely like I can win without you and I will win without you, that type stuff with those two, and that's what we're seeing now with Brady and Belichick. <laughs> and that's what created such a weird little bit of some sort of animosity, but then again, you could tell it didn't really impact team culture, obviously, because that's just that's just the front office, that's just you know the general manager that's management it doesn't have to do with the actual coach and the players themselves you know Mm -hmm. i feel like also i don't remember what episode this is if it was one or two but there was the quote where it like kraus said that yeah the players are important but it's definitely the management that is like more (laughs) important than the players yes yeah it was like something around those lines i'm not obviously saying it word for word but if you watch the documentary, you know what quote I'm talking about. Yeah, and something that was really good about episode one was they specifically said little man syndrome. You know, arguably Jerry, uh, I almost said Jeremy. That's <laughs> odd. Jerry Krause, you know, he's a big reason for their success, not just putting the team together, but putting the coaching staff together. You know, and then who gets all the accolades, who gets all the attention? It's going to be Phil Jackson to some extent, and then Michael Jordan to every other extent. You know, and then he had to feel like he got some sort of role in the whole. Yeah. Thing. Yeah. And he was slighted in that regard. And I can imagine I'd be feeling the same way. You'd probably be feeling the same way. It's tough not to feel like a little man. And he literally was a little man. <laughs> Apparently very well liked, just not by the people in this documentary. 
Exactly. The owner comes in and he's like, yeah, he's a very well-liked guy. And I'm like, what, by you? Because everyone else is saying the opposite. I was surprised that Jerry Reinsdorf wasn't in um, last night's three and four. <laughs> Somehow I feel like he was definitely like, you guys are pissing me off with the way you treat Kraus. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like Jerry Reinsdorf was like the most not, I don't want to say hands off because I obviously haven't seen the full thing yet and I wasn't alive for the pit, um, the Dude, Bulls dynasty, but about. I don't really know. Um, but it seems like he's very, like one of those owners who are like, I'll leave it up to you. Whereas you get another very successful owner for a successful franchise to go back to the Patriots. seems like Robert Kraft is very involved with everything that the Patriots do. But Jerry Reinsdorf is kind of like, okay, well, Jerry has his job, Phil has his job, Michael has his job. So I'd be interested to see, like many other things, if he'll be back in the next couple episodes, or in, in what way he'll be back. Jerry, Jerry Jones, hands off. I hate Jerry Jones so much. <laughs> I hate him. The geriatric bastard. Wow, the puns. I wonder which one of those women on his yacht during the NFL draft changes his diaper. <laughs> you think it was the one in the cocktail dress? <laughs> <laughs> the one who held his phone? That's ridiculous. Oh my god. This is off. CD lamb slipped into his fingers. Anyway, alright. Episode anyway. 2. The Pippin episode. Mm. Which was alluded at the end of the first episode that Pippin was not going to play in the 1998 season due to contract mm. allegations. Because he... I thought, from what I understand of the documentary, I know you hear both sides, but it definitely was seeming like it was bad on both sides. Like both sides were at fault for why that bad deal was made originally with Pippin's second contract. How it was for so many years for so little pay, but it was also because <laughs> where Pippin comes from. Well, from Pippin's perspective, it was where he comes from how he was raised. He wants to make sure he'll get the amount of money to keep his family and friends mm -hmm. like intact for as long as possible. But from the GM's perspective, you know for a fact that with Pippin's high like physical attributes that he was going to way out produce that contract very early in the contract. So it was like a 50-50 split between the two of them for like reasons why that animosity really built. Right. And then straying away, but still staying on um, your point. I think it's so interesting to compare um, modern sports holdouts versus something like this to this magnitude, because the Bulls, obviously best team in the NBA, uh, as they showed in episode one with their travels overseas, arguably the most recognizable team in the world. You get the number two player on that team who wants to hold out for contract negotiations or renegotiations. It's not, I, I feel like holdouts happen or they occur most in the National Football League um, in our day and age. And, but it's not like, it's not like you got the number two player on um, the Patriots or the Chiefs or other really successful. I think the mo the one that you can compare it to the most was maybe Le'Veon Bell holding out with the Steelers a couple years ago. I feel but like. Also, what, what are you going to say? I feel like a very good comparison is Kawhi with the Spurs. Mm, yeah. Where Kawhi was just not happy with how the team was handling his injury. Then they all accused him of him faking the injury. So then he just wanted to hold out longer. And that was like the biggest start I can think of that kind of put the whole sport on yeah. pause, just waiting for them to be satisfied. It's cra I totally forgot all about that just because of the success that Kawhi's had since then, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's, I think that's 
a much better point, a much better way to look at it. But yeah, it's so weird to think about any sort of modern sports holdout. It, and, it, and it's also not as well-intentioned, you can imagine, as Scottie Pippen's, where he's not asking for, he's not asking for over a hundred million. He's not asking for over 200 million in these contracts. He's asking for enough to, you know, be able to send back home to his family in Arkansas. Cause as episode two showed very humble beginnings and very really sad to see the way that, um, certain events transpired within his family, but also really incredible. his combine, his combine yeah. footage from the draft. Yeah. Pippen um, halfback from Arkansas. Uh, he ran a four four three. Also, his father and brother are both paralyzed. Yeah, it was terrible. I don't know. Also, what was ESPN doing half the time? It was crazy. We kind of alluded to it in the first round, and then they just kind of went with it. Yeah, exactly. But um, yeah, very. It was remarkable to see um, Scotty talk about that sort of stuff and how they all rallied together with his mother and everything. And then there was a really cool shot of his mother in one of the rooms of. Scotty's child at home, and he's uh, she's looking at um, the framed Bulls jersey. So just oh, kind yeah. of a little bit of like how far he's gone, you know? Yeah, that that whole second episode I thought was more enticing than the first episode in the way because it kind of shows like the crumblings of a really good team, which the first mm-hmm. episode kind of built up the beginning, and the second episode ch- kind of was sh- showing the beginning of a crumble with Pippin, and. Mm-hmm. The way that they were kind of painting Pippen, though, is that he was always this, like, really top five player. But when mm-hmm. you go back and look at the stats and, like, the common perception of him at the time, it wasn't that he was, like, this top five player. He was definitely very underpaid, but mm-hmm. he wasn't, like, in the MVP conversation at any point. And I think, yeah. in a way, that was the mentality that Pippen was carrying. Mm-hmm. Pippen didn't come off bad, though in this documentary like you you saw on twitter everyone was like siding with pippen everyone's like i can't believe pippen was getting underpaid and then they showed in the documentary <laughs> how pippen led the team in like assists steals uh yep. and like all these other defensive stats and passing stats because originally pippen was a point guard which they also said when they went to his like college and they showed that he like grew like seven inches and then someone in one of the episodes last night said that he really created the um point forward position yeah 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 oh. and uh yeah pippen in a weird way was like a more modern player than i feel like michael was yeah and um going back to the contract hold that something i thought was really interesting was i think the way you, you said that everyone on twitter and you know the reaction has been everyone siding with him i think the documentary did a really 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 good job of showing how because he was in the beginning, he was a role player and then became such an obvious number two. And then, you know, in many ways was the best in some aspects of um, a stat line on that team, like you were just saying. But then because he walked around with such a humble attitude, the fact that he was holding out, it was it was such a dramatization. But that's what the documentary did really well to show that he wasn't actually a bad guy. It was just so blown over because he had never asked for something like that before. Whereas if you get a modern sports personality, someone like Le'Veon Bell or someone, he hasn't done it with contract, but you know, Bryce Harper is another person um, on the Philadelphia Phillies who's just a very, has like a hothead image. They're all so like, that's... it came from like a selfish place and they were like mm-hmm. very like blatant that they were in a lockout. 
Mm-hmm. And it doesn't seem like Pippen was like every day being like, well, if they paid me, they would win this game. Exactly. When they were like, yeah. struggling, like you knew, like when Levy, like when Le'Veon Bell or Antonio Brown are like just barking on Twitter about mm-hmm. like how right. like they they're if they were in the game, they would have won, which you can argue because they're both great players. But at the same time, mm-hmm. it's just like you don't need you making your voice louder doesn't make it heard better. Exactly. That's a yes. That's a great point. And um, just because he was such a quieter player um, and because he was the number two on the best player in the world and he hadn't asked for anything like that before, that's why it made it seem so much bigger than it was. And it, obviously it seems like it was big, but it sounds like the perception of it was a lot bigger than it actually needed to be. Very blown out of proportion. In a weird way, too, I feel like the silent holdout does more damage than the like out like out loud hold out. exactly you're just, you're just letting your stats speak for themselves right and it's like well what are they really thinking what are they or is this is this part of the whole gaming sort of plan whereas like you just said before if you get someone like antonio brown barking on social media the way he has for the last couple of years he's so ridiculous then it's kind of just like okay we understand we've heard you but with scotty it's like we just want to know what you're thinking and that, I think, fuels anger a little bit more. Yeah, and the way that Jordan handled it, it seemed like, within the documentary, like, when they t- show all the interviews he took about Pippen, he always had his back, it seemed like. Mm-hmm. And he was never like, well, Pippen was on the court, we should be winning so many more games. Like, he never, like, pointed the blame of losing towards Pippen, which I think shows Jordan's leadership in a different aspect, that, like, he was never going to put the blame on anyone really yeah. but himself. And if they lost, it was because of reasons on the court. That was, I think he made that abundantly clear. Like, you can't blame stuff that you can't control, I guess. Exactly. So, like, the minute you step on the court, the Pippin drama disappears. And it's really like, can you win this game with who you have? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, so I feel like that really kind of, unless you have anything more about episode two, I feel like that kind of was the, like what I pulled away from episode two. Yeah, I think we basically covered it. I really like how with really great TV shows, I guess with, you know, my absolute favorite show of all time, Game of Thrones, um, <laughs> and, and other really good documentaries. I like how when it is spread out over a certain period of time, obviously this is going to go for five weeks to show the 10 episodes. It jumps back and forth. And then of course it all like a great Larry David episode of Seinfeld or Curb Your Enthusiasm it all comes back together in the end. And so I really like how they focused episode two on Scotty. Um, I don't know if they're necessarily going to hop back to it, especially now, because I mean, we'll talk about an episode four. He's done with his holdout, but it was nice to take that sort of break from the beginning of Michael's rise to greatness. And then going to Pippin and then episode three, which we'll talk about now is Dennis Rodman, the worm. Yeah. So you uh, really liked this episode. So I love this episode because I, Yes, I've. Everyone's got this idea of Dennis Rodman, and how can you not? Because in the last couple of years, um, as jerky as it sounds, you see the way he looks, and um, you 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 never see the whites of his eyes because he's always got sunglasses on, and he's you know hanging out with Kim Jong Un, going over to North Korea. You just hear all these really outrageous, outlandish things, and you see these things, and it just makes you think that he is freaking insane and then the very beginning of his career he wasn't like that at all 
he was this like just like blue blood defender. Yeah, very but very mild mannered on the outside, and then except for the shoving yeah. and elbowing that the bad boys were associated. Well, with. you know, <clears throat> yeah, so cut through. Yeah, I really really liked episode three. I thought it was really cool, and also just humanizing him, you know, because that's and then he said it a bunch of times where he's like, I don't. I don't give a shit about the public perception of me. Once he did finally start to make a name for himself and get away from the bad boys. Um, not that it was ever an issue of getting away from that team, but he yeah, finally got yeah. to come into his own and come out of his shell. And I really, really liked that episode. I always, I've watched the bad boys 30 for 30. So I always thought that team was really interesting. It reminded me in a way of like the way that the fab five kind of revolutionized uh, college basketball. Yeah. I feel like the bad boys kind of revolutionized the way that defense is played. They were much more of a press defense than most. Mm-hmm. I feel like most defenses would give you some leniency back then, and they were, like, all up in your face. I'm not saying, like, I love the way they beat the shit out of players all the time because that was not what I'm trying to say. But they did kind of instill the mentality that people say of the 80s, which I know some people say it's not true and some people say it is true. But at least when it comes to the Pistons, this defense definitely is the most physical defense I've ever seen. Yeah. um, My dad was watching the documentary with me for a little bit. He specifically watched um, um, like the very end of episode three and episode four with me. And he was just staring at the TV and then he'd look over a couple of times and be like, I don't think you realize how great the Pistons were. And so even though they were like the Fab Five and sort of revolutionizing the game, with them you never had to wonder like what could have been because they did win a couple championships and it's because they relied so heavily on that defense. Yeah, they were the ones who were met the end of the Celtics reign with like Bird in a way. They also mm. helped like they were there. I wouldn't say they stopped these dynasties, but they definitely were there toward the tail end of them. Mm-hmm. So like it's not like they beat them in their primes, but like they put an end to that dynasty in a way. Mm-hmm. And then they they were kind of like the wall that Jordan had to break through. So it's not like they were this like dynastic team, but they were definitely a heavily they should have a heavy amount of respect from a historical sense. They're like that like a pesky fly or a mosquito that just keeps coming back and it's in your peripheral. You know, you're trying to you're trying to go around and do your everyday routine and you can just see this really pesky little thing somewhere and you know that they're going to be around that's what i it's a little comparison i just came up with no big deal <laughs> whoa nice yeah so like they talk about they, i feel like the way they put the pistons and rodman together was very smart except i mm-hmm. feel like they didn't really address rodman on the pistons that much which i thought was kind of weird yeah not at they, all. They were, oh by the way in case you didn't know rodman was on the pistons and he shoved scotty pippen in the back anyway he's on the bulls now <laughs> and i was yeah just it like, didn't it didn't talk about and it talked, I think, in terms of uh, Robin being on the Pistons, what it talked about most was his relationship with uh, Chuck Daly and how something that was really cool to see actually was it seems like as misunderstood as he is and um, based on magazine covers and the way they were talking about the documentary was misunderstood at the time. Um, great relationships with his coaches all the time. It sounds like they really took him maybe not under his, under their wings, but you know, it was kind of like this little project that a coach knew that, you know, he had to get, he had to really get through to Rodman in order for the team to be successful. And I think you saw that on the Pistons and the Bulls. I feel like 
this is like might be a weird comparison, but I I feel like it draws parallels to Deion Sanders in the way that like yeah, Ooh. off the field he was this really flashy and like very sh- like bombastic presence, very showboat type. Yeah. Absorbing all the attention, but at the same time when he stepped on the field, he was the most productive player he could be at the time and always stood out. And it was like you would think he spent his whole offseason like doing this immense amount of work, but then you come to find like with Rodman and Sanders, they were all about like movies and like paparazzi type stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, living the lavish life that comes with such fame. Yeah, they could like flip a switch, and it was like they put they somehow had this ability to put like their body made it seem like they put all this work in when really they just didn't. They just had it. Yeah, and that's why it took such an extra level of attention and care from the coaching staff to really milk everything out of someone like that with Sanders and with Robin in order for the, for the team to be successful. Yeah, I mean, uh, the they definitely. We're going for the attack on Rod, not attack, like the angle on Rodden being like, this dude was weird because <laughs> they definitely yeah. just wanted to get that across. But in I a weird way, that. I felt like it was weird they spent so much time on Rodman because they do have an entire 30 for 30 on Rodman. So I thought that was a little weird. But I guess they're going through the dominoes of each team because I guess you could right. say in the first part it was like, I mean, the whole series is obviously about Michael, but like mm-hmm. – I feel like the first episode was Michael based, the second one was Pippin based, and this one was uh Rodman based, and we felt we both feel like the fourth one was Jackson based. Yeah, and I like how there's at the end of each episode you start to get a little taste for who it's gonna be about in the next one. Yeah, it's like it's the it's very smart the way that the, I feel like they definitely didn't it doesn't seem like it it seems like a show you could binge through more than like the yep. way it's split up into the two 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 two. I wish we could binge through it. It's so good. But in a weird way, it like helps create so much more conversation off of it. Like if it was binged, it would like it yeah. would be done by now. It would have been done like a week ago. That's true, and it's tougher to it's tougher to draw points between each one. And you would have just like taken big picture stuff from all of it. Yeah, that's true. I feel like astute uh, observation, man. <laughs> thanks, man. <laughs> I've been spending hours thinking of angles for this podcast digesting footage <laughs> i have rewatched the last dance so many times i don't know when will be my last dance <laughs> i wish we could rewatch i i can with espn plus well everyone knows that i'm a cheap bastard and i don't have espn plus <laughs> it's five bucks a month thanks for flexing <laughs> what uh <laughs> yeah so i feel like Another thing I wanted to talk about with the Pistons really quick was um, the migraine game, I feel like, was a huge point of that third episode with Pippen. And they basically alluded to the idea that, like, if they had Pippen, they probably would have won this series. But would this have completely changed the arc of the Bulls, do you think? I... I th- I think so to a degree. Um, I think that maybe his holdout wouldn't have happened the way it did because then then the first repeat, well, I don't want to say that, the first championship they would have won would have been in 1990 because that was one against the Trailblazers. Yeah. Yeah, they, I mean, they would have won that. I think it's very clear. Um, no, yeah, for sure. The Pistons were the team to beat at the time. Yeah, and then if the Bulls had won with Scotty, they would have won 
or they would have beaten the Trailblazers. I don't really know, Corey, to be honest with you. I think I think contract-wise, things would have been different. I um, think another thing, the reason I asked it is because I was thinking, if, let's say, they won this game, mm. what per, what like preceded them losing, I feel like truly instilled a team dynamic that mm-hmm. if they were not going to follow through with it, it would have basically become what they called in the fourth episode as Jordan or Michael and the Jordanettes. I feel like it yeah. still kept that same mindset in a way where it was like once yeah. they lost this game, that's when Jordan was like, all right, we're no longer going to just let this team out physically beat us. If they just beat them in that game seven without them putting in that work, I feel like the team would have – it's definitely possible. I'm not saying it's a guarantee because no one can play predictor of how the league would turn out if you played it a hundred times, who would have won what. But right. like – I would say it's safe to say that Jordan would probably have less championships without this second loss. Cause I feel like nothing is more devastating than losing to the same team twice. Yeah. Because then that's, that's a very good point. And then um, I don't want to say that it would have taken away some of Michael Jordan's motivation, but I mean, the fact that in 1990 they had Jordan rules that went into effect where it was, don't let him drive. If he gets in the air, knock him down foul him every single time if they had if he had beaten them in 1990 maybe like you said maybe there's less of um an inclination to i could it was um they went back to the gym the day after they lost mm-hmm. to the uh, pistons in 1990 and then michael jordan was like okay where's my personal trainer i need to gain you know however much weight it ended up being i think like 15 pounds of muscle in order to get through the jordan rules so i think that's a very fair point to say that maybe there would be less championships. Maybe there would be less of a, a spark under his ass. Yeah, I feel like it elevated Michael in the same way it elevated his teammates, though, because by Michael having this fire, it gave him the energy to give his teammates this fire. Because, like, I think I think it was Horace Grant who said it, where he mm. was like, oh, shit, if he, like, if I don't go in with the same mentality that Michael does, then I'm just gonna, I don't deserve to be here. Because he's working his ass off every day, and I'm just like I'd be sitting here being like, "Oh, that's nice." <laughs> like he's just gonna yeah, try that's... to carry us even further. But it, the whole team took this mentality of, if he's working this hard, then we have to work this hard to not let him down. And then it also that's a testament to um, the coaching transition too, with Doug Collins as Michael Jordan's coach, and you saw how well they got along. The ball was in Michael Jordan's hands all the time, but with Phil Jackson. It was the triangle. Always look for the pass. Always look for the next guy open, next guy up to hit the shot. And so he was still trying to break through the Jordan rules, probably because of pride against the Pistons. But then the next year against the Lakers, as we saw when they did end up winning the championship, it was find John Paxson. John Paxson's always open in this game. He's going to hit shots. He's been hitting shots. Um, So if they do win that game in 1990 – then I think you're right. It also takes away from the fact that Michael Jordan then started to look at his teammates as, okay, I need you like you need me. Yeah, I thought it was fascinating that they fired um, Collins that, like, after going to the Eastern Conference Finals and breaking through the. They're, they're mm-hmm. like, see, like, for the first few years, they were just trying to, like, as they said, to become relevant. Like, because yeah. Chicago had this, like, dark cloud over them sports wise, which you don't really mm-hmm. think of that now. But, like, back then, I guess, it was, like, the way we view Cleveland now, where it's, mm-hmm. like, they have this inescapable playoff disasters one after the other. And it, mm-hmm. like, 
when they broke through to the Eastern Conference Finals, everyone was like, oh, man, the Bulls have arrived. And how did they celebrate? They're like, all right, Doug, you can beat it. <laughs> exactly. And on a, again, straying away, but kind of staying on the point, it kind of goes back to Jerry Krause's influence, too. And what he did mean in his his talent and his eye for coaching talent and playing talent, him firing Doug Collins was exactly like him firing Phil Jackson or wanting to get rid of Phil Jackson. But the difference between it is championships. You yeah. Know? I feel like the reason they got rid of Collins though, is because they feel like the ceiling needed to be broken again after breaking it. Mm-hmm. But like with mm-hmm. Phil Jackson, I feel like it was just more egos than anything. Like, he was like, this guy thinks he's the alpha, but I want people to know that I built this. This wasn't him. This was me. I don't think anyone was like, man, Krause did nothing for this Collins situation. I feel like they felt like – I think they said it perfectly when they said that, like, I think it was Michael or it was – I can't remember who, but they were like, Collins literally only coached for Michael, but yeah. Jackson coached for the team. For everybody, yeah by implementing the triangle offense. So I guess we'll use this to transition into the fourth episode where they basically made it about Phil Jackson and his influence on all the team and the players where they introduced the triangle offense, which when you watch that graphic, it's like so simple, but it seems so effective that I don't get how, when he tried to introduce it with the Knicks that people felt like it was outdated because there's still definitely like, like scent of it still in the league today with the way that its purpose is to drive oh, definitely. like you described it best if you want to um to be honest i don't really remember what i said but i mean very team first always look for the next pass keep passing until you get the most open shot and i thought it was so interesting just to see the way it moved because we have such a negative connotation with it in today's nba because it doesn't work with such an individualistic player like Carmelo Anthony is. You know, I mean, he is a tremendous player, and he still does have a good amount of talent for what he's been through in his, you know, growing age. But at the same time, he's never been someone who... He's never broken through it by himself, and that's all he tries to do. He's never been about the team, you know? Yeah, like the first thing that uh, Jackson said to Jordan, he's like, I know that you like scoring like 37 points a game, but here's the thing. This system will work great, but you're not going to win the scoring title yeah, every year. And Carmelo Anthony is the player who said, I want to win the scoring title every year. Right. Exactly. So that was yeah, a quick so, and easy reason why that didn't work. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, everyone knows, and this goes for any sport as individual, as individualistic as sports can be sometimes with certain performances and big moments. It takes a team to get there, and it takes a team to win a game at the end of the day. You know, I, what I mean, everyone everyone looks at um, uh, a moment in the Game Seven of the Cavs Warriors Final in 2016. Everyone thinks of LeBron James blocking Andre Iguodala, but then again, how did they get to that point? How was it 89 to 89 at that point? It was a team effort, you know. Yeah, I feel like basketball, in a weird way, is portrayed as the most individualistic sport on the planet mm-hmm. but it's mm-hmm. also the most team based there is yeah, your team your teammates help you get there like yeah lebron gets this like con- like he is known as the guy who carries garbage into the finals but like maybe right. they don't stand out on the stat sheet but there is some part that each of those players bring that helps lebron do become a better player Right, because if you don't get someone setting that pick or setting that screen or someone kicking it out to a corner, you know, 
um, taking an extra dribble before passing, all these different things account to team success and they often get very overlooked yeah like look at the warriors for example like with draymond green is draymond green the fat flashiest player you've ever seen no he is probably one of the most basic players you have ever seen Mm -hmm. in terms of what he does but his commitment to doing the small things and like his best stat sheets he has are ones where his stats are like 10 eights and seven and six yeah it's like he doesn't stand up the triple doubles without points yeah, he does emphasize how important team-based like dynamics are. Mm-hmm. So yeah, he just he just said it recently where he was like, "Yeah, Steph Clay and I we changed the game of basketball forever." I don't think he's wrong. In a weird way, I know people don't feel this way, but I do feel like the way that Pitt uh, that um, Rodman influenced the Bulls in a weird way mm-hmm. is the same way that Draymond influences the Warriors because I feel like you take the two yeah. out. And like it changes the complete dynamics of the team. They were both like the most, like outside of the star being Steph and Jordan, they are the most important player to that success yeah. working. Exactly. And you look at a modern team who they're a player or two away from really getting it right. I think of the Trailblazers, they have two of the best guards in the league. That's the best backcourt, arguably, um, maybe with Steph and Clay. But what are they missing? They're missing a bigger guy who doesn't care about points who will settle into those roles and do it well every single time. And that's why they have Hassan Whiteside and Mel. Hell yes. Who we just talked about is a team first guy. Exactly. <laughs> and that's what I really liked about the beginning of the fourth episode too, with Phil Jackson on top of going through his little journey of, um, Peyote where Peyote. was, where, where was he a coach? Was it in, I thought it was like Brazil. Um, I thought it was like Latin America or South America, something like that. But somewhere um, where they put the opponents. Was it Puerto Rico? Or Puerto Rico? I don't even know. But um, it seemed like a fun so, hang. Yeah, it seemed freaking dope. Um, but I thought that was a really nice little part of episode four, and that little part of the story kind of ended with that shot of um, him and Dennis Rodman after Dennis Rodman's whole Las Vegas escapade where he went over 48 hours, the little vacation that they gave him, there which was a is, nice little, what were you going to say? I was going to say, which people were freaking out about. Like, how on earth could this happen? I just wanted to, like, the first thing I thought, I'm like, yeah, it's ridiculous he took this vacation. But you know what else is ridiculous that I kind of view as the same? These uh-huh. uh, healthy rests. Yeah, it's Donovan Mitchell said it earlier today. Dennis oh, Rodman created load management. Yeah, in a way, he is. This is load management in some shape or form. I guess the only difference is you're suiting up and you're showing up on the sidelines. Yeah. But like in terms of what you're doing, you're healthy and you're sitting out for yeah, reasons that I, are mental or physical. That's the thing, and it seemed like Dennis Rodman's were. It to some extent, he really needed the the physicality of going out and partying and being in Vegas with all these people. But at the same time, I think it's so much more mental than anything. You need to take a little break in order to do the little things best, because I can imagine how taxing that was, even though he wasn't supposed to be the scorer. He still had to do, he still had to defend and he still had to rebound better than anyone in the league. And knowing that you have to be the best at those two little things, rather than someone with Michael Jordan, and this isn't against Michael Jordan because he had a huge role, obviously. But Michael, there's so many different ways to score. There's so many different ways you can do it. But with Dennis Rodman, it's 
perfecting rebounding and defending every single time, kind of the same way every single time. So you can imagine that's kind of why he needed that little mental break of, okay, just give me a couple days and I'll be back, you know? Yeah. Also, like, Pippen was known as their best defender, so you have to imagine that Dennis Rodman had to start playing defense on their best player because that was Pippen's mm-hmm. thing. But Jordan yeah. was also no slouch defensively either, as they were saying throughout yeah. the documentary. But it just seems like you have to – like when you like point fingers and be like, how hard could it be to be the number two? You have to keep in mind that you, he basically had to become the number one defender on the team while also being the number one rebounder. And it's easier mm-hmm. to be his role as the three, like the third best player, not the three, like small forward, but yeah. that he now has to also like, he can, he only has to guard the power forward or he has to like maybe the small forward off of a switch sometimes, but it's like he had to turn his intensity defensively, which is already like a 10 out of 10 to like a 15. Mm -hmm. And it shows him being like diving all over the place and like has that Matthew Tobin Tobin like intensity. (laughs) Oh, you scrappy bastard. (laughs) They're so synonym, like synonymical. Anyway. (laughs) Yeah. The Australian worm. I've heard him never call it that, but I love it. Uh, Let's get it going on Twitter. And uh, basically what the way that they kind of closed off this fourth episode was that they alluded to the team that they would eventually play in the finals with the Jazz, which ironically they used as the benchmark, they said. Mm. They're like, all right, well, this is one of the best teams. And they had an astronomical lead like in the second quarter. I yeah. think it was something like 30 points, and then they just yeah. they just crumbled. So Absolutely ha- crumbled, yeah. It leaves you to wonder what did they have to go through after this loss to uh, end up actually breaking through again. Because like, yeah. they say that nothing is more taxing to these championship teams than to consistently win. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, because then, then it builds up expectations even more so. And then, you know... They're human, and they, I think it was a 27-point comeback that the Jazz did, and the Bulls squandered that, and obviously there's a lot of criticism to come with that because, again, that's arguably the greatest team in the league at that point, but also such a dynasty, such a well-established dynasty at that point, so there's really no margin for error. How can you give up a 27-point lead, you know? Yeah. I just, um, I feel like... People expect greatness out of teams that like are like this level like, mm-hmm. every season. Yeah. So like when they fall short, I feel like it puts more pressure on the players than anyone. And also they're the ones who have the longest season of any team in the league too. So Jordan's yeah. Bulls basically have had had the two longest seasons in the league up to that point. Yeah. Going on to the third. And they're, yet they're still having to push themselves in the regular season now, trying to soar through this, the Pippen situation, and then having to reinsert Pippen, and then take mm-hmm. out Rodman, and then put all these roles around, and trying to, it's like hard for them to finally hit their groove again. It's like they're just waiting for one gear to get put in place, but another gear gets taken out. And then navigate through public perception and scrutiny on top of it. Yeah, it was basically like a perfect storm for this team. And I'm I'm excited to figure out how they broke through. Yeah, me too. Especially with it being, um, it was around the time of the Super Bowl. I think it was the day after was the same day that they played them. And, you know, you can see on the plane, the players are feeling good and they're 
owing each other money because that was the Broncos Packers. And, you know, someone that picked the Broncos, someone that picked the Packers. So Michael Jordan has like a hundred dollar bill that someone gave him. They're playing cards and it seems very laissez-faire. And then I would be interested to see if maybe episode five kind of talks about, you know, was there some complacency at that point? Um, because they've already won five championships at that point. You know, are they starting to take a back seat in terms of their own um, definition of their success? Well, from the way that it's phrased, I feel like they knew that it was their last season basically together because with Phil mm-hmm. being out, it kind of set this right. clock. So I feel like it was them trying to battle being like, we've already done a lot. So like, what's mm-hmm. the difference if we don't do a lot now versus like Jordan's relentless fire to win being like, mm-hmm. guys, we need to win. This is probably our last chance to win because they're not bringing Phil back. Right. And you have to wonder what would Jordan do to really light a fire under this team's ass again? Because you can only yeah. inspire so many times. Yeah, I'd be interested to see. Um, maybe they will show this if it existed. Maybe it didn't exist, or maybe they won't even show it if it did. But I would like to see if some of the role players start speaking up. I like I love Steve Kerr in this documentary, even though there's been so little of him. And then the way that you see him in the previews, um, I really hope that he comes out and that he's talking a lot more about the experience and you know maybe things that he and other people were doing in response to Michael or maybe they were talking out more or something like that. So I'm excited. Oh, yeah, me too. And obviously we'll cover the next four episodes when they come out, and then the last two will be like a culmination of our thoughts on the whole thing, which I assume is going to be a rave review. Yeah. I'm, this is just the best thing I've ever seen. It's probably like – and it's like at a time where you have nothing to do but purely enjoy it. Right. I was so happy that ESPN moved it up with everything going on. Yeah, this was really the best case scenario for ESPN too. They're gonna get the max numbers and they're gonna get the max mm-hmm. attention on it. Yeah. From the media. Like it's all they're gonna talk about. There's sports and another, after the show every time. Exactly. Yeah, Scott Van Pelt. And another thing I think is interesting too is because there isn't basketball going on or any sports or anything and life is just at such a standstill. I we were talking about the, this before we started recording, but I firmly believe now that Michael Jordan is better than LeBron James. I know that for people who are older than us, that's not even an argument. And now I'm starting to see why I just think it's so incredible to see the footage. It's like, it it really like, it's obviously one and two Mm -hmm. Jordan. Like no one's debating LeBron's dropped like watching this, but it's like, it really, I think it makes it so the argument truly depends on what do you value? as your number one. I don't yeah, think, he, I don't think it's yeah. like football where like, it was like Brady in Montana. And then once Brady won like his next three Super Bowls mm-hmm. after the first three, he was, everyone was like, Oh, well this is over because the right. only benchmarks that people had were Super Bowls and Brady easily eclipsed Montana after his second six LeBron. I feel like can win as many titles as he wants, but at this point, like one, he he goes everywhere as like a head, mm-hmm. like a talent hunter mm-hmm. and he second of all like it's no fault to him but he has lost a fair amount <laughs> yeah yeah and another thing that i've 
I've always thought about this when comparing LeBron and Jordan is, well, LeBron could really play all five positions. He really could. And then I think that's just what makes Michael Jordan extra special is to see, I'm going to sound like everyone else, but the way that he flies and his hang time and the switching, the, the switched hands layup against the Lakers in the 91 finals. I mean, that's just absolutely incredible. And LeBron could do that with ease, most definitely. But it's because he's of a different physicality than Michael Jordan. Yeah. It was like LeBron was limitless. But I feel like yep. in a weird way, Jordan was limited, and that's what makes him more special. Yeah, I think so, too, because it was something you said a little while ago, but kind of breaking through each and every ceiling that people put on him. Whereas LeBron is one of these people who, I mean, LeBron is the person in our generation who's been talked about since he was 15 or 16 years old. You knew he was going to do all these things. It was just a matter of time. Michael Jordan, no one saw it coming in the very beginning. And then people thought about Michael Jordan as a very selfish player. And then he finally won, which is where we are now in the, um, at this point in the documentary. And he said it himself where he's like, now I have something where I can put myself in with Larry and Magic. And now I'd like to see in these next couple episodes how um, the gap winning championships after. Yeah. And the gap. And then how he separates him from absolutely everyone else now that he's won a title. Yeah, for sure. They, they've they done a great job of teasing it. And every episode, it seems like, like you said, it just turns into the LeBron-MJ Twitter debate. <laughs> yeah. Which everyone the- just picks what stats they want for which one. Like, whoever yeah. you pick. Like, if you pick LeBron, you're going to be like, yeah, he's 3-7 and seven in the finals, but at the same time, he had to carry Cleveland in 2017 and 2019 or mm-hmm. 2018. And you're like, yeah. <laughs> and uh, at the same time – oh, sorry. Uh, no, there's really, like – I guess you can argue that, but at the same time, like, you just – he got there. <laughs> yeah. I think more than anything, too, especially with the generational gap between the argument of who's better, LeBron or MJ, it's probably going to sound really cheesy, but I think it is true because look at what it's what this documentary is making us feel. It's all about what the player also makes you feel because maybe it's a, the difference between the modern NBA where um, marketing and advertising and the fact that it is so hyped up um, in comparison to Michael Jordan's era of the NBA – but also the Chicago Bulls were the team known around the world. And I don't think everyone around the world was like, oh, my God, the 2016 Cavs or the 2012 Miami Heat or the 2013 Miami Heat. You know what I mean? Yeah, it was like I don't I think here's the negativity thing that I feel like is attached to LeBron. LeBron is basically these days a basketball factory. And like what I mean by that yeah. is like. He assembles his team with the best parts he can have. And Jordan was given a team and was drafting like Krauss was assembling it around him. So he had really no say in the way that his team was built. When LeBron basically mm-hmm. gets to pick and choose where he goes and who he takes with him. It's recruitment, yeah. So it's um, like if you're picking who you want and you're still failing to an extent, the only person mm-hmm. you can blame is yourself. Right. Yeah, because if you're the one doing the picking, then if it's a chemistry issue, then you're probably going to sit back and say, well, why didn't I do more to 
make sure that everyone gelled or to make sure that everyone was on the same page versus but, yeah, like, very, trading your whole team very, away every other week. Yeah, it's a very fair point. I mean, modern sports, there's so much recruitment that goes on. It's crazy. And like you said, Michael Jordan was given the team in the beginning and then everything was built around him. So yeah, I like that point. Yeah. Cause you don't see these days, this will be the last thing we talk about, I think for the episode, yeah. but like, um, LeBron, you never hear of a situation where LeBron's like, I don't like this guy. Let's get him out of here. Mm -hmm. Like, or like, I didn't like the move the GM made. Because mm -hmm. you heard that the uh, Rodman, or no, when they traded their center away, um, Oakley, for uh, the tall Cartwright, mm -hmm. that Jordan really didn't like that trade. But you don't. What? When's the last time you can remember that LeBron was like, "I really hated when the Heat or the Cavs or the Lakers did this trade." It's always, "I really." You knew LeBron was the one pushing for these trades. To exactly, be exactly. Yeah, if you think about his uh, chemistry with certain people, I mean, you have to imagine that he played a big role in Dwayne Wade playing for the Cavs for however long it was. Felt like twenty minutes um, <laughs> when Ray Allen came to the Heat after on the Celtics for the big three championship in 2008 and the um, limited success, but still success in the next couple of years afterward, you have to imagine that LeBron James is like, why don't I get arguably the greatest three-point shooter of all time on my side, and then we'll try to beat the Spurs. James Jones. Or whoever. Yes, James Jones, forever and always LeBron's third nipple. <laughs> I think that's a good way to end it. <laughs> I, I'd say so. All right, buddy. Thanks for uh, coming on, and we'll have you on in uh, two weeks to talk about five through eight. Thanks so much, man. God bless. Mike dropped. <laughs> All right. Thanks to Ian for coming on the podcast and talking the uh, last dance. That was a good time. Uh, coming up this week, we got an interview with Tanner Kern talking about his journey from college D1 lineman into kind of a marathon runner junkie if you will which would be very interesting and very positive i believe which we all can use a little positive in this time so everyone just stay safe